You're listening to the Outsider Art and Occult Podcast, Pragmatic. I'm your host, Keats Brooks. This episode, we leave the woo-woo for the weird. Well, the wonderful of what could be considered an outsider artist, by which I mean someone who has created and conjured wonderful works of art far outside the confines of scenes, streams, or currents. Allow me to gush for a moment. I have been a fan of John Schmersel's for the better part of my life. Whether it was his angular guitar shapes in his early band Brainiac, or his approach to songwriting and production in his later groups like John Stuart Mill, Enon, Vertical Scratchers, and Crooks on Tape. John is a paragon, a conduit of crooked clamor and mutant melody, and I hold him in the highest regard as a creator. That aside, it was nice to get the scoops on how his little-or-known masterpieces were created. You know, the ones like his Masonic Temple-recorded solo project, John Stuart Mill, or the midwifing of his frontmanship with Enon's Believo. Both records were birthed simultaneously in the wake of the tragic death of Brainiac's brilliant swashbuckler frontman, Tim And both are major touchstones for my own sonic experimentation and outsider music since high school. Hell, I even named my high school band Belivo in tribute to his work. There's a new Brainiac documentary making the festival rounds that answers the long gestating questions about the Brainiac folklore that warrants a hunt and a watch. This documentary seems to have already resurrected the fun and fervor of the Brainiac legend with rare reunion shows and stars like Fred Armisen lending his accolades. I feel proud that they are finally getting some long-deserved shine. Though past is simply prologue to John and his prolific career post-Brainiac and even Enid, as John has created some of the most inventive incendiary music since. He's created the irreverent rock of the vertical scratchers, the improvisational Enon torchbearers that are crooks on tape. He tours with the wonderful Caribou, produces records, and gave this longtime fan over three hours of his wonderful time to chat about all of the above. The following has been edited down for time, but you can hear the full three-and-a-half-hour conversation via our Patreon at patreon.com slash we the hallowed so slither hither weirdos and witches here's my conversation with john schmerz It is such an honor to talk to you. I've been a fan of yours for so long. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And please, uh, thank you for rescheduling a lot. <laughs> oh, no problem. I'm sorry that it was such a process to get to this point. Oh, it's, 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 it'll be worth it, I promise. So it's pretty, uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of prescient that I get you on the phone now, uh, considering I started my love for your music and my my kind of fandom with your work in Brainiac and with the new documentary that's that's out and I thought we could start with maybe the genealogy around what got you guitar playing in Brainiac. Hmm. Well the Dayton music scene really wasn't that big and so when I was in high school I played in a few different bands. Me and Tyler, the drummer in Brainiac, played in a band in high school 
with uh, just, you know, our, our high school, some, some close friends. And the outgrowing of that later, me and one of the other guys played in a band with kind of our local, uh, like, hardcore hero called Haunting Souls. And that band, the guitar player in that band went on to play, Nate Farley went on to play in Guided by Voices and uh, Tanning the Amps, sort of the breeders kind of in-between named right. thing. Eventually just became the breeders again with kind of a changing lineup. But anyway, uh, you know, so at the time when, when me and, and this guy Jeremy Frederick were playing, first it was a band that I, I sang in with Tyler uh playing drums as a hardcore band and I just kind of sang or screamed and eventually is playing bass uh, in this incarnation of Haunting Souls and the basement that we practiced in was in the house that Jamie and Tim Taylor lived in. At the time, Timmy had this band with Juan called the Whizbangs. Uh-huh. So like, you know, they, they we all just saw each other around. The Whizbangs were a totally different kind of thing. It was more of like, kind of like sweet, kind of more 70s, more glam than, like, you know, punk per se. Uh, And eventually that stuff morphed into what became Brainiac. By the time I went to college, you know, they tried out Tyler. And even though I wasn't known for playing guitar in any of the bands, I I sang in one and I, I played bass, which was really my first instrument. I was obsessed with learning to play any instrument. I bought whenever I could find anything that was cheap enough, I would buy it. So basically between Tim and at that point, he was hanging out with my friend Jeremy, who I had been in both of those bands in high school with. And I think he suggested me, much as he also kind of wanted to fill the shoes, I think I seemed maybe to be more grounded. So Tim actually wrote me a letter and, uh, invited me and I'm sure Tyler corroborated that, you know, he would love to have me in the band. So like I said, there weren't really, the scene wasn't that big at the time. I was constantly experimenting with tunings and my, my thing about playing in alternate tunings was more to confuse me and train my ear. It was more of a way to, to use those shapes and to make new shapes for different kinds of chords and to sort of get out of, you know, get out of the box, that kind of stuff. And more than anything, I, I think that I did a good job of, of, yeah, training my ear and, and maybe confusing myself, but I didn't, I wasn't playing in a set thing per se. So the best part for me about joining Brainiac was that it was exciting to really embrace a band that was so great. That was local that I also knew all the members but also that timmy had already you know created a palette of tunings that he was already using and so i just basically came and was like oh i i get this this feels really good and we just hit the ground running yeah that's fascinating i love you considering uh musically in a visual way you know or at least approaching instrumentation like guitar because i i hear that like there's a through line with your guitar playing, you know, from Brainiac to Vertical Scratchers that is very much your own. And I've never heard anyone kind of come close. I used to jokingly remark that it sounded like Mark Rabot, like a punk rock Mark Rabot. You know, like these really fascinating kind of atonal structures that where it's like a sinew for the entire song. Like really, really fascinating stuff. And Oh, thank you. Yeah, to hear you talk about it in a visual aspect is is super interesting. And did you approach... Is this where your love, like you were saying, for cheap instruments, your love for the Tisco guitars and and all that kind of came through? Well, mentioning the love for Tesco guitars, when I joined the band, I I was going to college at Ohio University, and I was about two years in, and just about... I was supposed to be getting into whatever my core thing was, which I chose audio engineering. What I really wanted to be doing was playing music. And the summer before that, that year, I was working two jobs to save for the, for the school year. And I ended up going to, 
you know, there were a few great music shops in the Cleveland area where my parents lived. And uh, there was also this guy who went to trade shows, uh, which were pretty popular at the time. And so he was always getting new stuff in. And I, I blew a considerable amount of the money that I was basically making and saving for that next year on a lot of the core things that I ended up using, joining the band by wintertime. So, you know, I didn't know it, went for it, and it worked out. You know, like, I, I won't say it was intuition. I, I won't say that I knew that I was going to join this band, but I kind of, it kind of fulfilled its destiny for me. When I joined the band, there weren't that many new songs, but we were just kind of like, I joined and there was already a tour to be rehearsing for. So I joined, we practiced for the tour, kind of like there were a couple of new things on the table, but by the time that tour was finished, it was like we needed to make a record. And the longevity of a band of guys in their 20s, it was a long time after the first record and they had they had done a, a, con, a considerable amount of touring on, on that record. So uh, Bonsai Superstar happened really pretty quickly. I don't, I don't, there were demos for things, but it came together quite quickly so much that I feel like we had a certain level of uncertainty of, you know, digesting as, as it was happening. Whereas Hissing Prigs was a lot more polished in that there were demos for all the songs and, you know, we were like ready to go into the studio when we went in. And I think that that, that shows we were definitely like a fully formed band where we knew we knew our strengths and our weaknesses. And I always remember Tim, I didn't really ever think about this kind of stuff when I wrote things, Tim, Tim would think about the way Tyler played drums when he would think about writing a song. And so he would kind of write for his kind of manic style of drum playing, which I, I, I think is really an interesting thing to consider. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's just one of my favorite, it's, it's, it was so influential for me as a young, uh, you know, musician, songwriter too, especially one who played in bands. Like there was something so sinister, but somewhat comical to it. You know, there was like, it was fun, you know? That's the thing that I loved about Brainiac before I was in the band. I really loved bands like, I love Bad Brains. And I loved the Dead Kennedys when I was in high school, and I loved the Dead Milkmen. And there was a certain cartoonness to the music, where the, you know it was punk and it was angry, but there was still a sense of humor. Bad Brains and Dead Kennedys played so fast that it almost didn't seem possible, and they and and the singing was so crazy. And so that's kind of what I felt about Brainiac. They when they played live, it was way faster than on the record. It was kind of unbelievable what you were hearing. It didn't yeah. sound it didn't sound real. It didn't sound like something people were playing. It sounded like something someone had manufactured for you to to like, you know, make believe. Um so I, I was very in tune with that. Those were the things that those were where I, I came from as a as a a listener and, you know, the band that we had in high school was also a bit like that. It was it was punk, but but you know we had a we definitely had a sense of humor about it. I always be both approachable and emotional and and a little scary too. You yeah, know, like I, yeah. I really like bands like the Cows. Yeah. Back then, there aren't really bands like that anymore that are so you can't really tell if like it's funny, but you're also a little bit scared when you're at the show. <laughs> you know, you don't know what's gonna happen. I was gonna bring up that there's a tether you know, that thread with all of your music that does have that levity to it. And I remember reading, you know, we'll get we'll get to Believo in a little bit because I got a lot to say about that record. But there was, you know, I remember reading reviews of it being called like cartoon, cartoon noir or, you know what I mean? Like it was always picked up on this kind of this uh, this like humorous chaos in it, even though I think the word cartoon doesn't do it any service. But I could see why people pick up on the humor like that. Well, I was wondering if you could paint a picture to me around that time, because um, pretty soon, not directly soon, but like your next project, John Stuart Mill, is a record that I have relentlessly listened to, has been super influential to me as just like a, a, a solo 
one man band, you know, engineer, you know, performer um, throughout the years. And I, I always wanted to know what the gestation of that record was, like where where you were in life and especially after something as as pivotal as Tim Taylor passing away. There's it's a it's a mixture of things. So I was talking to you about you know where I was when I joined Brainiac and I was using a lot of tunings and I was I was collecting instruments. I would buy guitars at thrift stores, acoustic and electric. Right. And I you know, I would I got into uh Orette Coleman, Fred Frith, you know yeah. yeah, Mark Rebo, a lot of experimental guitar playing and I just wanted to be able to create a palette really like the catalyst of using a four track was just not everyone could afford a reel to reel and totally. or learn how to use one and the the distortion on a cassette four track when you overdrive a track is it's pretty forgiving. Before I was in Brainiac, as far as like building a palette of weird acoustic guitars that just had an interesting kind of tonality to them in spaces and putting them in weird tunings and, you know, kind of just the way that those guitars sounded and felt. I always felt like guitars, even cheap ones, had a really almost like a life of their own. They would yeah, inspire things that... <laughs> Kind of. I mean, it wasn't until like the last 10 years that I actually started trying to acquire guitars that actually played well, (laughs) which is a ridiculous thing to say because, I mean, I I kind of often bought guitars because I liked the way that they looked, either aesthetically or just the way that the, like the neck felt in my hands. And a lot of times those ended up being Japanese guitars or you know, cheap British guitars or cheap families of Dan Electro Silvertone style guitars. I guess the I, what I was saying is when I was in Athens, there was a big community of, of people who who made kind of like bastardized folk music and self-recorded. And when I got into Brainiac, I, I got centered, but also a, a bit out of that and at the time when we were doing Hissing Prigs, I was really, really super into what we were doing there. And part of what I liked about getting into sampling and sort of away from the Moog was I kind of felt like I was starting to hit a wall with the things that I was doing in Brainiac as a guitar player. I wanted to, I wanted to do either newer things or newer things to me and whether that meant doing it in different tunings or just figuring out like a kind of different way of playing, or maybe I just needed some new gadgets to add into the mix because one of the things that I was pretty steadfast up until then was not using effects for the guitar playing. I barely used effects. I always kind of thought tone, like the tone knob on a guitar was kind of overrated. <laughs> like, you know, you can roll off the tone, which I do when I play bass. I like to roll all the tone off. So right. It's kind of wolfy sounding. But for guitar, I feel like it's some of them, I would, I would have the, the guitar tech just jack the electronics. So it was maybe the volume knob worked, but sometimes it was just the pickup wired straight to the jack because <laughs> it's, the simplest connection yeah. is the strongest connection. And so you're going to get the cleanest tone available in that way. And then I would plug into my amp, and I loved the way that my amp sounded. It was a tube overdrive section and a solid-state master. So it was kind of the best of both worlds, and I, I always liked the way that that sounded. So anyway, kind of experimenting also at the same time with self-recording, uh, stuff at home, and then by the time Timmy passed, I was living in Newport, Kentucky, in uh, the second floor of what was the Masonic Temple of Newport. And ah. it had really high ceilings, and, and it had a really interesting tone. And so I kind of spent a lot of time recording in there as sort of like self-therapy right. uh, after Tim passed. And basically that process, it was, it was a before, a middle, and then I finished that record in New York. I moved there during that, that following summer. 
So it's, it's a bit of a moving piece in progress. It was recorded in a bunch of different rooms. So there's different acoustic sounds right. and also some direct input stuff, which sounds very more, more intimate, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful record. It's uh it, it was always very haunting for me, and I didn't really know at the time or understand kind of all the, you know, the backstory with Tim Taylor so much. It was just I kind of stumbled onto it looking for what the Brainiac people were up to after, you know? Well, I'm glad you did. Part of my sort of journey through that experience was when I arrived in New York, and I kind of started Enon simultaneously. Yeah. The... the uh, Dave Sardi, who started the, the label that we were, both records came out on, when when the exactly. John Stuart Mill thing was happening, I didn't really. The, one of the reasons why I named it John Stuart Mill and not myself or whatever was, I kind of was my way of not taking responsibility for it because yeah. I didn't really, obviously, didn't feel like myself. Partly through the process of of making that, it was like I just had to go to a different place and work through those things place it was life. important you know was it a, just um, a, a heavily creative kind of annexed time i don't know i think that's the, sort of the mystery of of creating things right. like it was there was there was i did i did a few different things i was doing i was making that record and i also had this paya kit for a synthesizer that i was soldering together and i was smoking a lot of pot and I was doing a very bad job of putting together that synthesizer, by the way. It, it, <laughs> I was not very good at soldering, and I didn't have a very good soldering iron, and some of the components got heated up a little more than they should have while I was trying to put the thing together. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, you just you do things to to move through that area. I remember after Tim died, deciding there was a show that was happening in town and I, I purposefully went to the show, not because I was excited to see the music, but because I knew there would be a lot of people there and I knew that, that they could like tell me that they were sorry and we could talk, we could, we could work through that part and I could do it kind of more or less all at once in a weird way because yeah. it, you know, it, it was for me healthier to kind of just like engage with that in a cathartic way versus, you know, like kind of just running into people, you know, willy nilly or something like that. Yeah, what better way? Just diving back in, working through it. Refresh the anchor, as you say, right? Exactly. <laughs> By the time that that was becoming something outside of like my brain and a label was going to put it out and it was going to become a product, I had a really hard time dealing with it because, you know, then they were like, well, are you going to, you know, you got to take press pictures and when are you going to start, you know, are you playing shows? Are you, have you played any shows? And I was like, oh man, I don't, I don't think I want to be that guy on a nightly level. I don't want to go places and rehearse this music and play it out it didn't feel it didn't feel good on a level because i don't music that is melancholy or of that nature it was good for me to work through it but i didn't feel like i wanted to relive that every night the process for me was about making it and so i kind of came to a realization and i was like you know what that's when i that's when enan was starting and enan was was sort of like the continuation of all of those things I was talking about in Brainiac, oh, like yeah. I was happy to be doing something with like-minded people, Rick Lee, who became kind of my, my new musical Skeleton songwriting King, partner. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love and that band. if I hadn't had that going on simultaneously, I think it would have been very, I think the label would have been very angry with me basically because it was their first release. And so they kind of used it as a Guinea pig to figure out how to, you know, put things out. And it was just, it was 1999. So right. digital downloading was one of the first years of that ha- actually happening. So they're figuring out how the distro got counted for those things and things getting advertised on the web versus like also in print. And so it was an interesting process, but for me, it was kind of like, okay, 
I definitely like playing in a band more. And I definitely realize that people who make records expect you to promote them. Right. So, you know, you have, you have to deal with, with that aspect of it. And I realized like, okay, it was cool making that record, but also continuing as a guitar player. I used that guitar tuning a little bit, but I really wanted to get away from the typical shapes, sounds, and movements that I did in Brainiac. I was already kind of feeling like I was had done a lot of the things within that those grounds that I wanted to do. And it was actually an opportunity to do something which seemed radical for me, which was laying in standard tuning every once in a while. Oh, yeah. So, so well, that also happened. Let's dive in because Enter Believo, right? So this record... I think I've told you a couple of times, I actually saw Enan play at Berkeley uh, years ago. And I remember coming up to you after and was like, hey, I'm the kid that started his high school band and called it Believo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. We did talk about this. Yeah. So this this record meant a lot uh, as far as just, uh, it's just one son of a bitch of a record. It's so good. And it's so sinister and just... Um, there's there's something so dark and beautiful about it, you know. And Matters Gray was the first song I heard from it, and that's kind of what pulled me in. And that song, in and of itself, to me is like an entirely uh, different genre or idea of music. Wow. Yeah. But. Let's talk about the creation of that record. Like I've always wanted to know now that I know that you were doing it in conjunction with John Stuart Mill, which makes perfect sense because they're very they're they're antithetical in a lot of ways, but I do see the through line. I like playing the supporting role in Brainiac, you know, I wasn't ready to be a singer when I was when I was in that band or like the, you know, kind of a, a guitar playing frontman even though I sang in a band before. At that point, I kind of started to figure it out, I felt like. And Rick Lee and I just worked so well together. When I, when I moved to New York, we started playing together immediately. And we just had a gazillion ideas. I had this closet-sized studio in my apartment, which was above the staircase. And we banged out so much crazy stuff that ended up on the first two instrumental releases and the Envolivo so, in such a short time period. He and I were this just This was like, in the Masonic place, too? No. Um, I mean, I had the sampler. Basically, all my Brainiac stuff was in Dayton. Right. And, and oh, like, yeah, you were saying, yeah. Yeah, like, I moved from Dayton to Cincinnati and then to Newport. And by the time I got to Newport, the sampler we had, which was a PV sampler, so it was two rack spaces. Mm-hmm. And... I inherited that when uh, when Brainiac ended, and like so, I had that. Rick Lee was more a proprietor of battery powered, smaller, you know, Roland based uh, right. and Japanese samplers, battery powered stuff that he could fit in the suitcases, and that's where the suitcase penchant started. Yeah, but yeah, I I got really into using this Alesis MMT8 sequencer and. I would sequence either MIDI synthesizers through it and or the um, this PV sampler, which which just my favorite thing to do. I would spend hours and hours creating like a really intricate program for a sample bank. And then you just change banks to a random bank right. that you would create something else. And it was like, oh, my gosh. This is way better than the thing I spent two days creating, you know, using rhythmic MIDI information and reprocessing it in, you know, into banks that you were unintentionally using for more like sometimes it was comic relief and sometimes it it just made sense as far as like a change in a song or. Right. I was just wondering, like, how hard it was to kind of translate that to playing live. Well, we me and Rick we're kind of of a similar mindset where we were not really thinking at all about sort of in a similar way that 
you know, the John Stuart Mill thing, I was working through it, but it was the luxury of not anticipating how you were, were going to do things live or if you were going to do them live. We weren't trying to play live. All we were doing was trying to create stuff in a tiny room on headphones and or through you know, a little amp. So we were just constantly, I mean, that in a way, I don't know if you know the crooks on tape, his and my new oh, band. Yeah. yeah. But when I think about what we do now, it's in a way very, very, it's, it's just a, a total growth of those, of that first bit when he and I were in that like little closet space studio I had, you know, we were just like basically recording ourselves live, mm -hmm. improvising with samplers and synthesizers. And we were, you know, thankfully we were, we were recording a lot of what we were doing because it was, it, it all just seemed to gel. It was spontaneous and we weren't necessarily concerned about, how to play it live or if right. it was practical to play live and and Believo wasn't a very practical record <laughs> to perform live so there were there were many tunings and so I quickly learned when we started playing out you know okay now I I have to have you know like three guitars which I didn't I did not like immediately I was yeah. like this is a pain in the ass but you know we figured we figured out a way to make that work and to supplement it and at the time, too, we were also being very much, when we were the original Eamon three-piece, we didn't have a bass player, and we were like, yeah, we'll have bass frequencies, but we won't have a bass player, it's gonna, and we'll make it work, and it's going to be great. Yep. And eventually it was like, it might be nice to have a bass player. So yeah. that entered Toko Yasuda. I was going to say, and so the, the genealogy of Enon, so, so Rick Lee leaves kind of after Bolivo, is that right? He was... He was going through a pretty crazy time. He was in like three or four bands. He was playing Butter 08 slash doing some shows with Chiba Mato. Right. When they needed an extra person. And he also, the Butter 08 band, which Russell Simmons, the drummer for the Blues Explosion, he had a thing on Grand Royal. He put out a record. Right. And Rick played in that band. He was a very, very busy man. He was, I was jealous of Rick Lee back then. He was doing work. He had tons of freelance work. You know, you would hear his sound bites on like MTV two. Like he did a lot of their little commercials. And, and you would stuff. know it was him. Like I remember Skeleton Key going, Oh yeah, no, that's that's definitely a Rick Lee thing. No, totally, yeah. yeah. It was very very particular his his palette of sounds he used. It's in a way one of my greatest regrets because I really felt like he was such an integral part of that band, but he was such a pain in the ass at the time. Like he was really not able to keep his schedule. You know, he was in more, he was playing more music than anyone else, but he was not very responsible about his schedule. And so sure. I remember we were, we showed up at our, our practice space to load out for a gig that was that night. And he was there already and he was surprised to see us. <laughs> he's like he thought he was getting he thought the gig was the day after and so he thought he was getting there he was going to pack up his stuff and um you know like be ready in advance and little did he know the gig was that night so we were like Oof. you know he also had some other gig that was sort of like you know he he had screwed up a few times basically with the scheduling part and you know, we basically had to kick him out of the band. And he, I feel like in a way he was being maybe kind of self-destructive at the time in that way. He didn't, he didn't want to necessarily give up any of them, but he also was kind of like maybe exhausting himself. And so yeah. he kind of stopped playing music after that for a while, after he finished the Russell thing. And I think he did like a stint in Speedball Baby playing bass and, you know, for a tour or something. And then he, he left the stage for like over 10 years. It wasn't until uh, I hooked up with him back in LA that, that he started like really playing again. I was going to say, cause like I love Crooks on Tape. It almost really, you were right. It sounds like the continuation of that first iteration of Enon. But I think I read the thing was you guys are improvisational, right? Yeah. 
so that's sort of the the conundrum of the band. We are always recording. Mm-hmm. Once we made a record, you have to go on tour to you play shows, support the thing. But so then became the thing where we had to figure out a way to present the record, and that's not improvising. <laughs> you know, and so we kind of got in the spot where it was like, okay, we have to figure out how to play these songs, and which we did, and kind of after we did like a tour or two, and I had the vertical scratcher stuff. The next, when we came back right. around, back into our sweet spot, it's been both. I mean, it's been the story of the band, but it's also kind of been like the detriment of of our thing live. I think right now we're in a better spot where we we kind of like to play a half and half when we play live. So yeah. it's like, you know, bring like three or four songs to the table, but we'll switch back and forth between a totally improvised thing, find a way to segue out of that, play a song to reel in people so they're like, Oh, this is like it's structured, this is like a proper song <laughs> and then go and then kind of segue back into that other stuff. So, you know, it's kind of a push and pull. Not a lot of people are necessarily interested in improvisational music, nor is it always captivating. So right. that's kind of a challenge. But I love you that know. you pepper it. You know, you got you peppering it with other with uh, you know uh, tethers of actual structure, but mm-hmm. allowing yourself to have fun too. You know, <laughs> you know, we make up names for these sessions, and before the idea was like, okay. There's some of the stuff gets extracted, like there's nuggets and you extract the nugget and you turn it into a song. And that's what, that's what happened with fingerprint. Basically we, we massaged these improvisations and, and sort of like little flurries into proper, like a proper pop record. That was the idea. You know, that, that's not always possible. And yeah. as we, as we, started to do this more and more and more i started noticing it was like well okay like before it was like nuggets you'd find really good nuggets right and then we started getting really good at transitioning you know you'd be like okay we've been doing this for a while someone would stop and the and the other two would we would start to like you know morph what we were doing until we were able to segue and so i started noticing like okay this part's kind of lame we started just cutting out parts, basically. It's now we're just editing some parts out that, w- that aren't as exciting. And before, in the beginning, like I said, it was, it was about forming, trying to form songs. But now I feel like they're cohesive enough that these kind of evenings can exist on their own. We just kind of need to, like, you know, time it down so it's not the yeah. newest Tarantino movie or whatever. <laughs> right. But yeah, letting them, <laughs> letting them breathe in, in public a bit too, which is, it's a really good idea. I have a uh, sub podcast thing called Audiomancy where I kind of share all of the weird audio experiments I do. And I've always been fascinated in like seeing, you know, what other musicians processes are, you know, and like their um, creation and their generation of, of their music and I would I would yeah sign me up man I'm 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 first in line for that. Well, I just feel bad because I feel like we've been together since 2010 and we have two official records out. Right. But there are literally we get together sometimes twice a week and slowly going through and digging out the nuggets and or just cutting out the fat basically. And so Yeah. It's ridiculous that we've been so active and yet we've released so little material. I mean, coming from a world where I've always had like a booking agent to get shows and stuff like that, but I'm barely playing music. It's totally insane. Like I'm barely playing live, which is what I really need to do. I love touring and I love traveling. And I'm, you know, a lot of people aren't very suited for it. There are a lot of musicians who, hate being away from home. They don't like traveling. They don't like being away from their family if they've started one. And it's very hard on them. But it's like, it's kind of the place I feel most comfortable. Like, just when I, when I go on tour, I feel, I feel at ease when yeah. I go on tour. 
Well, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of that second generation of Enon. Uh, High Society was one of my favorite records as well from from you guys. Uh, talk about a concept record. Like, that one flows so beautifully in so many different directions for me. But I was wondering if you could talk about just a little bit about, you know, that kind of, um, that era with Toko and and maybe the disillusion a little bit. Well, Rick Lee's presence in the band still carries over from he was he wasn't very physically present during the high society like basic tracking he was but like you know he was playing in other outfits during like a lot of the overdubs and stuff for that record. Okay, so but he was he still is a lot, yeah. he is involved on that record and yeah. When we made the the Lost Marbles and Exploded Evidence thing, basically right. it took a long time for High Society was supposed to be the second record on the see-through broadcasting label. And literally, I'm telling you, like three weeks before the release date of the record is when the label basically was like, like they were not telling us anything. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, the label's folding. And so uh, it was just like, oh, okay, so mm. our record's not coming out in three weeks. Like, that record was supposed to be a pre-9-11 record, but it became a post-9-11 oh, record. And crazy. I, I stress that because I feel like that record has a lot to do with Giuliani's pre-9-11 yeah. New York. And in the it coming out, like, after that, we returned... 9-11 happened, and all of a sudden... Everything was about rock and roll and slightly more retro, whereas kind of in, in my mind, I felt like, you know, 1999, right. the year 2000, like we're building toward the future. And that next year, 2001. Well, you guys ended up so, on Touch and Go, right? Exactly. And so it took a while to get the rights to that record. Wow. And so during that time period when we were waiting for that to happen, we just started releasing a lot of like seven inches and putting songs on compilations. And that that's what became the Lost Marbles and Exploded Evidence uh, sort of compilation, which I right. consider to be kind of a proper record. But Rick Lee's all over that, too. There's, oh, it's there's a tons great of record. That, yeah, there's I tons of things on there that, that he was a part of. So you I know. think it, you guys were kind of marketing it as like a B-sides or like rarities kind of thing, right? Well, I feel like Touch and Go, you know, by the time we had done High Society and then Hocus Pocus, you know, I just felt like there was a lot of good material that, that people hadn't heard. Like there was there was probably two and a half albums worth of material or so. And... So Release I felt like, tapes. you know what? I, hmm? Release the tapes. Yeah. It was like, we should make a record. What we should, we should make, we could make definitely a really good proper record out of this stuff. And I, that's how I was approaching it. But I'm really proud of that record. I like the way it flows better than some records that you just write properly. I love on it. Their own. I mean, I, I think of it as a proper Enon record, you know, I, Thank you. I mean, also the DVD was so much fun because I remember Enon.tv, you know? I remember watching like the carbonation <laughs> video on, you know, my shitty computer back in the day. And it was like, man, more of this. Where are the visuals? You know? <laughs> like, so that was great. Yeah, it was super fun to make to make that stuff. So what... Uh, so you... Hocus Pocus seemed like that was... It, I, and I saw like production quality kind of go up in the video range and not that it needed to go up anywhere else or it needed to go there. I just I remember watching music videos for Hocus Pocus for singles and being like, oh, shit, like this looks like I just mean like it seemed like there was a lot more money put behind you guys on Hocus Pocus. And it seemed like you guys are kind of poised to to. You guys were touring all the time. I saw you guys, I think, twice on that tour. It was fucking great. Um, but what what kind of went down around that record? Was that kind of the record that they kept they were pushing you? But part of what you're seeing visually is actually Juan Monasterio. Oh right, yeah, the bass player. Yeah, for Brainiac. Yeah. He started a production company with some some guys, and they were making 
great videos for people. And basically he, you know, the video for in the city, for instance, yes, was done by that, his, his company. It's a beautiful and, video. Yeah. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the song, the song daughter in the house of fools off Hocus Pocus. He also did that video. Yeah. Um, that one, so, it's the one I kind of think of in my mind's eye when I'm like, Oh shit, Eden's about to take over the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's it seemed like that's funny poised to be uh you guys were you know gonna be finally getting the kind of big you know recognition it just seemed like a a a good push in that direction what i wanted to get into was glass Glass Glass, yes yes yeah yeah um i want to get into that record and kind of the end of the chapter for enan yeah by the time we got around to doing Grass Geysers, it was decidedly like, in my mind, I wanted to make, I didn't think that I would make any more rock records, but I was like, I want to make one more really strong rock record. Little did I know I would do Vertical Scratchers right. several years later, but you know, that was kind of what I was going for. And at Soko and I had moved to Philadelphia and I was, I was doing a lot more recording. I was recording other bands. So I had like a studio in the house that we lived in. And I'm really proud of that record, the way it sounds sonically. I'm really excited about the whole process. We did basics on tape with Nicholas Vernis, the rare book room in Brooklyn. And then I brought it to my house and did overdubs. And then we brought it back to his place to mix. And then we had it mastered with this guy, uh, uh, and mastering who I, who also mastered, uh, Bolivo actually. Ah. And I attended that mastering and I feel like there's been a few times that I've been places that people have like played songs off of that record. Like I've been somewhere and someone was DJing and they played like one of those songs came on before or after, you know, something else. And I was like, Oh, that sounds good. Like I, I still am happy. I'm still happy with the way that came out and seeing that through from, you know, just from a standpoint of like being involved in the recording and in the songwriting of it. Yeah. Grass Geysers was a cool record. And it sounds like you guys toured kind of nonstop for it. Right. Well, it was a bit of a confuser because at that point, moving to Philadelphia, uh, for me, was sort of, in my mind, I was just thinking, like, it's really hard to be in a band in New York City. I can't believe that I that we were able to do it the way we were able to do it for as long as we were. We had a practice space that cost $500 a month. We had van payments that were $500 a month. And then we had our regular like rents, which, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot of money to have to like figure out how to make and go on tour. Like it seems insurmountable to me now to be able to do that. So moving to Philadelphia in a way for me, I was like, I want to have space. I'm sick of everything that is annoying about New York. And it was getting really annoying, mm-hmm. like parking a van anywhere, doing anything anywhere, having a practice space, competing for space. So I felt like I was returning to sort of an East Coast style version of Dayton, Ohio, where I can play in my house in the comfort of my own home again. I can afford to have studio equipment now and maybe record other things. I was doing more freelance music production stuff for like independent film channel and other stuff. And, but for, for Matt, our drummer, Mm -hmm. he's, I feel like he saw us moving to Philadelphia as like us moving away from him in a way. And so he started playing with, other bands and he was playing, he played in a few different things, but uh, he was also playing with this band, Holy fuck. Mm-hmm. And at that time their, their, their first record came out and they were blowing up. They were big and shit. It was, yeah. yeah. It was in the middle of that tour though. So he basically kind of like jumped ship 
you know, sort of like with some tours looming. So we kind of picked up the pieces and got a drummer we really liked from uh, this guy, Andy Robillard from Go 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 Earhart. Oh, I um, mean, I, so Michael Vermillion, uh, Go Go Earhart was like, I went to high school in Southern California and they were like one of my favorite bands used to go see all the time. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, that's crazy to say because I have to say that, you know, I mean, Mike's a good friend of mine now. Really? And that's awesome. We played shows with those guys and, you know, Andy was a real funny guy to have on tour with us, but it was also just kind of like a little bit traumatic because we didn't, we weren't really expecting that to be part of, of the, you know, of the situation sort of like, I think also building up to that, you know, I had been pushing to try and be a four piece here and there. So we, we kept trying out people. You could tell, even if I was remotely excited about it, I could tell that like they were not that interested in, in trying to introduce someone who, you know, it's hard to introduce a new person into a band's marriage, you know, right. that, that you have. So it, it was already complicated there. And, and, and you end up spending time like rehearsing with this, this other person that, either does or doesn't end up being your band. So you kind of, kind of waste time in a way doing that. And then by the time we did those tours and it was like, okay, Matt's leaving and we needed to find someone to do it. Then you have to practice with another person, relearn these things. Yeah. It definitely burnt Toko out. And, yeah. you know, as much as I, th- I think that that record is like really a great record and maybe underrated on our catalog like you know there wasn't a lot of excitement around it and so if toko hadn't really you know said these things to me i probably would have wanted to continue soldiering on but it was also very of the times where you know by the time 2007 hit 2008 and the economy crashed you know that really like affected our lives individually yeah. too. So I, I was, I was like courageously going into more credit card debt in order to like yeah. fund tours and do things and freelance jobs stopped kind of coming. We're living in Philadelphia versus New York, which was financially helpful, but like not on a level of like when things get tight, and they got tight for grandmas, you know, <laughs> right. because, you know, that lose that lost their pensions or whatever. Cause the Bernie Madoff, like, yeah, you're going to hire, you're going to hire grandma to do the, to do the small jobs Absolutely. and not John Smurzel locally. <laughs> so, uh, basically that's when the caribou gig happened for me. Is so, that what brought you to LA sort of, was caribou? The uh, Dan's based in London. And I mean, the band's based all over the place. At the time, yeah. the guitar player Ryan lived in Singapore. Um, That's easy. The drummer lived. Brad lives in Toronto. <laughs> so it was like, I mean, I could have stayed in Philadelphia. I could have gone anywhere, really. We had more friends in Los Angeles, and you know, we decided to take a chance. And of course, Rick Lee lived here too. So as soon as I got here, we started playing music again, which was great. So. Yeah, it's awesome. I love that you're located in LA. I'm I'm down there more than I am anywhere else, I think. So Well to tell you the truth, I don't know if I began this conversation with this or not, but I've recently moved to the desert. Oh where? Where? Where where where? I live in Desert Hot Springs. Nice. So Eastern California a bit? Well, it's still Southern California, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, speaking. like Southeast. It's not the Southern California that other people think of. Sure, it's yeah. It's funny because everyone, everyone, there's a lot of people migrating here from either SF or LA, um, but most of them moved to Joshua Tree, and yep, <laughs> I have nothing against Joshua Tree or you know, like people that are like, it's great, I've got like 20 acres, and I'm like, yeah, but I still. I still have a feeling about like, you know, the consideration to move to the desert for me was more like I wanted to have 
sort of that thing again I was talking about, like being in a city like Dayton, Ohio or Philadelphia at that time where I just wanted to have more space and not be so stressed out about money or people or gentrification or, you know, all of those things. I've just been, you know, like living in big cities is, is like, there's, you know, there's obviously trade-offs involved, but I, I'm just, I want to get back to the center of being able to be creative and be bored enough to like really create with no other incentive than my own. This is crazy, man. I haven't, I haven't announced this. You know, I'm a desert rat. Like we were talking earlier, I'm from New Mexico and Arizona, but, uh, it's funny because I, I often don't really think of, I think of Albuquerque in a strange way, but I don't often think of it as the desert necessarily, even though it obviously like is, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it is. That's fair. Though. <laughs> That's fair. I think about Albuquerque in a strange way too, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's a beautiful place. It's been a very strange, like, journey. Boring there all over all of these years. I've had yeah. some very special experiences in in Albuquerque, but it's a weird city. For it sure. is. Yeah, I. Uh, but the thing is that so me so I've been living in Portland for like the last seven years. And it's just, it's time to go, you know, it's time to, time to yeah, you feeling it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been feeling it for a while. Only place I ever moved back to. So this is like my second time living in Portland, which is super weird for me. But we just found out uh, due to my girlfriend's job and, you know, I've got family out there. We're going to go to Denver. So Nice. I think Denver's great, man. Yeah. So that's like. That's going to happen real soon. I haven't really talked about it with much people because it's like we can't really fathom it yet, even though it's happening in a month and a half or so. <laughs> so. I mean, Denver was bandied about a little bit. I think yeah. uh, I'm I'm just kind of like I think that I could live any many places. I'm pretty adaptable as long as I have like a figure to be able to still travel like I've really yeah. – do love touring like I still just imagine that no matter where I move what makes it possible for me to 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 like exist there would be that I'm gonna be able to go I'm gonna be able to travel and and part of that is that that to enable that travel you know yeah um that's where I'm at as well you know like you were talking but about I've always loved Denver it's that's a weird awesome. it's also a weird city with yeah. a weird with weird histories but there's something very like it's like Detroit for me. There's something very salt of the earth. Yeah, very, about very it. American in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. It, if I had my choice, it wouldn't be Denver proper because I feel like you. I'm like I want to, you know, I want to live in the woods. I, you know, I've taught outdoor schools for a while. Like I, I kind of would just, you know, I would love a desert setting too. I would just love to be kind of in the shadow of a city, not necessarily in a city, but somewhere where it's more nature-based, just because I think, you know, it would give me way more impetus and, like, intent to go, you know, do things or be a part of everything, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's funny, because, like, I remember back in Brainiac, you know, you'd have a cassette deck in the van, yeah, and, uh, but otherwise it was radio, and Juan, whenever Juan drove, he actually, like, I would be in the loft napping. I would wake up, and if Juan was driving, he would be listening to, like, AM radio, which even then, that was, like, the birth of, like, what is now totally conservative-style Rush Limbaugh yep. Yep. and whatever that other Alex Jones-style, like, fucking angry right-wing talk radio. That stuff was Oh, it's been going on for a long time. And I was like, Juan, what the fuck are you listening to? Why are you listening to this? And he's like, you got, like, you got to know how, like, you, yeah. this is know thy also enemy. educational. Yeah. <laughs> know thy enemy. That's what, that's what my dad used to say, you know. But so, yeah, man, um, thank you so much for taking this time. This is so illuminating. 
I really appreciate you and your work, sir. I really do. Well, I hope that your battery hasn't run out or your uh, or the terabyte of hard drive space that you had at oh, ninety six. No. Uh, I keep you know, I keep that shit eight. load just in case. Nice. So I really yeah, um, I really appreciated well, this. What I've been illuminated by is I'm I'm really happy that you brought up uh that you're a fan of Go 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 Earhart slash Michael Vermillion. Oh yes, yeah, man. Jesus, this is why I do this. Uh, thank you so much to John Schmersel for, uh, you know, talking to me for so long and such a wonderful conversation. We did edit it down again, um, and it was great to work with him on it. You can listen to the full unedited one at patreon.com slash we the hallowed. You heard it first uh, in this. If you're still listening, um, I revealed that Denver is on the horizon the weirdo podcast triangle will now stretch out to the southwest uh it's looking like october i will devote an entire episode to keeping you updated on the move it's a good one it's for great reasons um and i talk to next week the episode Derek hunter um in depth about it we actually have a great dialogue about it so You'll hear more on that soon. Uh, the episode art was conjured by the Disruption Generator um, by Outlet Press, Eric Millar. You can pick up a, a soft cover on Amazon still, disruptiongenerator.com. Uh, the card was geometric. And uh, let's see. Um, again, thank you so much for, for listening. I know I've been on kind of a break. Life has been insane it's been beautiful but insane I, I i can't be more excited for the future i can't wait to share more um but i'll just leave it at that for now um once again visit we our art collective for articles all that good stuff um the music was uh matters gray by enan as the first track and the song behind me is also by john it's crooks on tape and the song is called If Feelings Mean a Thing. Theme music was by Dakota Slim. Please check out Cactus Crown. Uh, it's my album. Owes a lot to John. That's been out for a year now. DakotaSlim.net. Before I leave you, I'd like to play one more track from John. It's from his solo record he created in the Masonic Temple under the name John Stuart Mill. It's called Refresh the Anchor. I love you all. Thank you very much. And haunt on. I heard about your friend through the dead by dead moon. Just I should refresh the anchor for.